right. The children, you guys can be dismissed now. You can go with Bess and Barbara. It is unique that when we gather, we can pray for the men and women of this country and then turn around and pray for those in countries far, far away because the gospel truly is a global cause. There's a picture. Uh, Scott, if you want to go ahead and throw that one up, that first one. Ever seen that? Ever seen a guy wearing a sandwich board that says, The end is near? The end of the world is upon us? What are, your, what are your thoughts? What are your reactions when you see such signs or when you hear people talk about the end of the world? Perhaps this week on the heels of Tuesday's elections, you have heard conservative evangelical leaders talk about how they believe that America is on a path of destruction. They believe that what we are seeing today are signs that the end is near. What are your thoughts? How close are we to the end of the world? Well, in the passage that we're going to be looking at together today, Luke chapter 21, Jesus gives his disciples some insight into what the end times will be like. Now, before you all get frantic about the apocalypse and uh, before you break out the Kool-Aid and start passing it around, I want to give you some guidelines about reading apocalyptic literature, right? And, and by apoc- apocalyptic literature, uh, what I mean is basically places in the Bible that talk about the end times, that talk about the future, the end of the world. Okay, so uh, the most commonly known book that talks about the end time is what? Revelation, right? Uh, another book that talks a lot about the end time, it's in the Old Testament, is the book of Daniel. And then we see portions that talk about the end times throughout the Gospels and, and elsewhere in Scripture. And you don't hear many sermons coming from the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel, do you? Because it's hard to understand. There's some confusing things in there. Even seasoned pastors sometimes avoid uh, talking about the end times and the apocalypse. But yet, I think it's, it's interesting. Um, often, I have talked with someone who's just come to believe in Jesus Christ. They've just converted in faith. And, and, and where do they want to start reading? Revelation. And I'm like, well, why is it that they want to start reading in Revelation? Well, it's because the future intrigues all of us. We are all intrigued and curious about the future. And for a new believer, they now have a new understanding of reality and their 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 vision of what life is really all about is much clearer, so they believe that they can now understand Revelation. But but even those who have been a Christian for many, many years, when they turn to that last book, they're like, what is going on here? Right? I mean, have you ever read the book of Daniel? I like the children's storybook version of Daniel, okay? In In the children's version, it talks about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown in a furnace and being rescued. Like, we like that story, right? The children's version of Daniel talks about Daniel in the lion's den and God rescuing him. But in the adult version, we get these weird images. We get these visions and dreams of four beasts that have four heads and wings and horns with eyes and mouths growing out of horns. It's, just, it's weird stuff. And we're like, what is going on here? Well, 
try to explain the book of Daniel and those images on a flannel graph, right? Try to explain them to a three-year-old. Try to explain them to a 30-year-old. It's hard stuff. So let me, let me just kind of give some guidelines for when we read apocalyptic literature in Scripture. Oftentimes, when we come to apocalyptic literature, it's talking about the end, we come across numbers. 144,000, 2,300, seven days, seven years. And when we see numbers in our culture, numbers to us represent metrics, represent precision and verification. And so we see numbers and we're like, oh, it's a code. Let's figure it out. And so we begin to calculate and estimate, and then we begin to chart. Okay, and everybody seems to have a chart. Anytime that the church starts talking about the end times, someone pulls out a chart and wows everybody. Hal Lindsey's got a chart. John Hagee's got a chart. Tim LaHaye's got a chart. And they all pull up the chart, and they basically say, what? You don't want to get left behind. Right? You don't want to get left behind. I can remember uh, when I was in Sunday school and someone first gave me a chart. Talked about this is when Christ is going to return and this is what's going to happen for seven years and then this is what's going to happen for a thousand years. And then with that chart in my hands, I thought that I had unlocked the mind of God. I thought, well, now I know. Now I have the interpretive key to understand the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel. But what I've come to realize is that everybody's chart seems to be a little different. Everybody's calculations of those numbers seem to be a little different. They don't add up to the same figures. And if we really needed a chart to understand what God wanted us to understand, don't you think God would have given us a chart? So what I've done is I've thrown away my chart, but I've kept my Bible. And charts can be helpful. I don't want to say that they're not. But charts are not authoritative. Okay, if, if you have just been captivated by someone who's shown you a chart about the end times, and you're like, wow, that must be it, just be careful. If you think that the chart is as authoritative as Scripture, then you'll probably end up drinking the Kool-Aid, too, when that passes around. Daniel, Revelation, and the apocaly- other apocalyptic portions of Scripture, they shouldn't be read as a puzzle book to try to figure out but instead a picture book, okay? That, that's, the, that's the image, the metaphor that I want us to have, that it's a picture book. That these books use wild and vivid pictures to grab our attention. They're not meant for us to decipher. I like this quote by Flannery O'Connor when she described her writing style. She said, You draw big pictures for the blind and you shout loudly for the hard of hearing. Our ability to understand the future is dull. No one can take a trip to the future and send back a postcard. We're all blind and deaf. And so scripture gives us vivid images. And those vivid images of the future are intended for us to prepare well today places in scripture that talk about the future they're as much about the present as they are about the future they teach us how we should live today 
And Jesus is doing the very same thing in Luke chapter 21. So I encourage you to go there. Luke chapter 21, if you're not there already. This is an apocalyptic portion in the book of Luke. And it's a conversation between Jesus and his disciples about the future. We'll pick up in verse 5 to see how this conversation got started. And it's important that we understand how this conversation got started. Luke 21, verse 5 says, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. There's another picture that I don't know if we'll be able to get to. Uh, I want to show. But if you remember that Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. Yeah, there it is. They're in Jerusalem, and every day Jesus is teaching from the temple. And while this temple wasn't quite as marvelous as the temple that was originally built by Solomon, it still was grand. It was impressive. And the disciples are walking by the temple, and they're like, wow, look at those stones. Look at this temple. Isn't it grand? Well, the picture that you see is not of the actual temple. It's of the temple mount, right? It's like the temple basement or the retaining wall for the temple, right? And there's a picture of Lindsay and I when we were there a few years ago. And you can see that each stone is humongous. And it's an engineering marvel of how, without our modern technology, they quarried those stones and they got them to Jerusalem and and wheeled them up this mountain and placed them and stacked them on top of each other. It is a marvel. It is quite impressive how they did that. And so if the very foundation is this impressive, you can only imagine how impressive the actual temple was. Well, that temple was no longer there. But during Jesus' time, his disciples were quite impressed. But Jesus response is to tell them, hey guys, don't be so impressed with that. It's all going to be torn down. It's all going to be just a pile of rocks. Thanks for showing that picture. You guys can go ahead and take that down. So that's the setting when we come to verse 7, where the disciples ask Jesus a question. It says in verse 7, they asked him, teacher, When will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? When is this all going to go down, Jesus? When is this temple going to crumble? When is the end of the world going to come? Will there be any signs forewarning us that the end is near? Well, here's Jesus' response, starting in verse 8. And he said, See that you were not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, I am the Christ. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Okay, by these words, Jesus communicates that he doesn't want his followers to be alarmed when they hear of wars and rumors of wars, when they hear of people who are claiming to be the Messiah. He doesn't want them to be alarmed because he says that the end is not going to be all at once. 
It's going to be stretched out over time. Well, Scripture refers to both a last final day, singular, and to last days, plural. The disciples lived at the beginning of those last days, and we continue to live in those last days. Because you can trace all of Scripture's history, you can outline Scripture in four simple acts, four simple events. There is creation at the beginning, then there's the fall of man, and then there's the rescue, which was promised in the Old Testament, accomplished by Jesus, and then there's the future restoration. Creation, fall, rescue, and restoration. And we are living between the time when Jesus came to rescue mankind from his sins and the time in which he will ultimately restore the entire world to God's created order. The disciples lived in that time. We live in that time. And that time is referred to as the last days, plural. So far, those days have lasted about 2,000 years by our calendar. We'll pick up in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. That's epidemic outbreaks of disease. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. In Matthew's gospel account, he describes these as the beginning birth pains. Like those first contractions that a woman feels to tell her that she's about to have a baby. She's not yet having a baby, but she's about to. It's getting close. It's getting near. Verse 12. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. All right, so the sequence so far is that persecution is going to come to the church before the wars, the earthquakes, the famine, the disease, and the terrors from heaven. And nowhere does it say in this sequence that the persecution is going to end. Therefore, followers of Jesus both then and now, should expect persecution. And what is interesting here is that in verse 13, Jesus describes persecution as an opportunity. An opportunity. He says, persecution is your opportunity to bear witness. Persecution? An opportunity? For me, I think of an opportunity as a new job with higher pay, right? That, that, that's an opportunity. Not persecution. Not my family turning against me. Not the government chasing me down, censoring what I'm going to say. But Jesus says persecution is your opportunity. And throughout history, Christianity has flourished under persecution. So when American Christian leaders speak out, about the eroding values in our culture. And they say that America is on a path of destruction. 
I heartily agree that the best principles to govern any government or any nation or any people will be principles that align with Scripture and God's principles. I heartily agree that all laws carry moral value. You cannot have a law that does not have some moral value to it. I agree that people and nations are culpable and accountable to God. And I do believe that God will not allow a nation to go on for very long when it uses his name in vain. When it says, in God we trust, but it means nothing of it. I too deeply desire that the people in America would be awakened to the glory of God. And would see that Christ is more worthy to live for than our own personal success, wealth, happiness, or pleasure. Yet I also sense that sometimes there are American Christians who are more concerned about their own comfort than they are Christ's glory. There are some American Christians who fear change in the status quo. And there are some leaders who convey this perception that if America continues to become Christless, that Christianity itself will fail. But men and women, our God is bigger than one nation. And this world is bigger than America. And right now, today, there are places in South America and in Africa and in Asia where the gospel is going forth and where the fame of Jesus' name is resounding. So yes, we should pray for our country. Pray that we would repent of our errors and that we would seek God. But remember that we are a people who live first and foremost for God's glory, not our country's glory. And if America does go down a path of destruction in our lifetime, a path in which the government censors what the church can say and do. These words of Jesus remind us that our faith has not crumbled, but that it will be a time that is an opportunity. If we face persecution in America unlike we've ever faced before, it will be an opportunity to bear witness to our true King just as the prosperity and the freedom that we enjoy is an opportunity. Do you know that? The freedoms that we enjoy today, the opportunities that we enjoy today, it's all a platform for us to demonstrate and show how great our God really is. Well, next Jesus gives an incredible promise of his present grace that will be with his followers whenever we are put on trial for our faith. Pick up in verse 14. It says, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. 
For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now that's interesting. Verse 16, Jesus says that some of his followers will be put to death. Like Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was stoned to death. Like 11 of the 12 disciples who gave their lives because they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. Jesus proclaimed and promised that some of his followers, like thousands throughout history, would be killed because they take a stand for Jesus. Yet in verse 18, Jesus says that he promises not a hair on your head will perish. So how can Jesus say that some of you will die, but none of you None of your hair will perish. Is that a contradiction? Well, not if you believe in the resurrection. Where is true life to be found? Is true life really to be found in this bag of bones that lasts 70 years, maybe? Is that life? True life is found in Jesus Christ. Our lives are united to His. So can tribulation or distress or famine or nakedness or persecution or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? By no means. Neither death nor life. Angels, rulers, neither things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are the words written by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. And what do you think gave him such confidence to pen those words? That nothing could separate us from the love of God. That though we are persecuted, though we face death, Still, not yet, a hair on our head would perish. What gave him that confidence? It was because he had seen the resurrected Lord Jesus. It was because he stood before rulers and governors and kings. And God gave him the words to respond to them. Words which they could not refute, just as Jesus promised here in Luke chapter 21. If Jesus lives, we live. Life is for him, and death is gain. Turn to verse 20 now. Jesus says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter in. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. 
Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In these verses, Jesus is specifically addressing his disciples' questions of when Jerusalem would fall, of when this temple that they were marveling at would be destroyed. And in the year A.D. 70, only about 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem, Jesus, just as Jesus predicted. They overtook it, and they destroyed the temple. In the end of verse 24, it says that the imprint of this destruction, which maintains even today because there is not a temple even today, he says this will last until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In Matthew's account, there Matthew writes that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And as we mentioned last week, Jesus allowed and permitted the destruction of the temple. Because God has made his dwelling place on earth in the church, in his people. And he has made his dwelling place among his people so that his gospel may go forth from Jerusalem into every nation, among every peoples. So this delay in Christ's final coming is God's patience and it's his mercy to allow the gospel to go out into all the world. And then, then, when the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled, when every people group has heard of the name of Jesus, then the end will come and the new Jerusalem will be established. Well, Jesus' disciples They didn't just ask, when will this happen, which Jesus told them would happen when the Roman armies surround the city, which happened in 70 AD. But the disciples also wanted to know, what will the signs be for the end of all time? What will the signs be for that last final day? And Jesus responds to that question in verse 25. He says, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. Hmm, that sounds familiar. The roaring of the sea and waves, perhaps as far as north as the Jersey Shore. People will be fainting with fear and will be foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The signs that the last day is near will be cosmic shifts in creation. And these cosmic changes will will cause perplexity, will cause confusion. That will lead people to fear and fright. There will be a sense that something bad is about to happen. Yet, I suggest that there will also be attempts to explain away these changes these unusual signs and weather patterns and the stars and the universe. There will be both extraordinary and ordinary 
in that day. There will be both common and uncommon things going on in that day. In Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 30, Jesus also refers to the last days, and he likens it to the days of Noah, while Noah was building the ark. And it says there that as Noah built away on that ark, knowing that God was soon going to flood the earth, that people continued living life as if nothing was going to happen. They continued marrying and having kids and going to work and selling and buying. Not everyone in the end day is going to be hunkered down in a bomb shelter. Okay? There will be this mix of unusual things going on at the same time as ordinary life will continue. And then in verse 27, it says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. This is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is the Messiah. Coming in a cloud is a sign throughout Scripture as God's judgment. And this is the return of Christ. And Jesus says in Luke 21, 28, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Pay attention, is what Jesus is saying here. Sit up straight. Straighten up your head. Look up. Pay attention. You don't need to be all worry and frantic and oh no, the end is here. But instead, pay attention because, why? Your redemption is drawing near. This is what you hope for as my people. The coming of the Son of Man is to your advantage. It is the restoration of all things. It brings an end to the persecution and the miseries of this world. It is what we ought to be longing for as his people. And so here's the purpose of these signs that the Bible gives us. These signs of wars and earthquakes and famines. They're not to help us calculate the date of when it's going to happen. Because Jesus says that no man knows. The angels don't even know. He doesn't even know. It's all up to the Father. But the signs that we see, and we are seeing signs, they're meant to tell us, wake up. Pay attention. They're designed to keep us from letting our guard down from being caught surprised. They're calling us to pay attention that this earth, that this life is temporary. The signs are to help prevent believers from being deceived. In the church of the Thessalonians, there were some Christians who feared that they had already been left behind. Have, have you ever experienced that? I can remember as a kid, and I, I grew up in church, and, and I heard the stories of Jesus coming again and the stories of the rapture. Um, I even had a poster in my bedroom um, where it had people flying out of cars and stuff going up to meet Jesus in heaven. And, and, and so I probably had um, a higher interest in these things than most kids. 
But I can remember I'd be sitting in the living room on, on the floor watching TV, and, and maybe it was my sister or my mom and dad would be behind me on the couch, and I would just get so um, just caught up in whatever I was watching on TV that whenever there was a commercial break or something, and I finally looked around, I didn't notice when that person had left the room. Right, and so I was sitting there watching TV and just going about my ordinary life, and then all of a sudden I turned around and no one was there, and I was like, oh no, have I been left behind? And, and I, I really, I lived with this fear of that, and I would get up and I'd run to other places in the room just to find someone, because I didn't want to be left behind. Well, in Thessalonica, the church of the, of the Thessalonians, they had been told that Jesus had already returned, and, and they had this, this fear, this feeling that they had been left behind. And so Paul, in one of the places where he talks about the end times, and he gives these signs, he, he, he writes to them to, 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 to settle down, don't worry, because before Christ will return, it says that the man of destruction, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, must first be revealed. And Paul says that hasn't happened yet. So don't worry. Don't, don't be so alarmed. Also, the signs are to call us to action. These signs of the end times, the earthquakes, the wars. They are to call us to action. Second Peter, when he's talking about these events, in 2 Peter 4-7, 4, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter then goes on and he commands the church to continue loving one another, continue showing hospitality to one another, continue using your gifts, continue proclaiming God's gospel, continue being about kingdom work. We're not all to just run to the mountainside and hide out and just, just wait for Jesus to return. We're to continue living lives of holiness and godliness with a sense of urgency. Since the time is short, both for me and for others. The reality is, we don't know when Christ will return. We don't know the date. Maybe it's in our lifetime, maybe not. But regardless of when Christ returns, each of us in this room have a limited amount of time before our eternity is set. When we die, that's the end for us. And our eternal destiny will have already been confirmed. So regardless of if Christ returns today or tomorrow or in another thousand years, all of us must prepare now. Look back at verses 29 through 33. Here Jesus tells them a parable. He says, look at the fig tree. Or look at all the trees. Look at the, the maple and the poplar and the hickory and the Bradford pear. Look at the trees. And as soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and you know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things, these wars and earthquakes and floods taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away.
Now, this is the most difficult portion in this entire passage, especially verse 32, where Jesus says, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The most obvious way to read this is that when Jesus says this generation, he's speaking to his disciples, and he's saying, your generation will not die until all this takes place. But if that was the case, then Jesus was wrong. Because the disciples did die, and the end has not yet come. So that can't be what Jesus meant. Well, what does he mean by your generation? What is he referring to when he says these things will take place? The answer is, I don't know. He could mean a variety of things. Perhaps he's talking about generation as the people who oppose Jesus. That's how generation is referred to elsewhere in the book of Luke. And so he's saying that people will continually oppose me until the end comes, until I return. Perhaps he's talking about the Jewish people. Perhaps he's talking about all people. Perhaps he's talking about that when these signs start, it will only be a generation before the final end actually does come. It's hard to be dogmatic about these verses. And I could give you the, the preterist or the futurist viewpoints, the idealist viewpoints. I could sit here and I could talk to you about the pre-trib or the mid-trib or the post-trib or the pre-mill, or the all-mill perspectives. But I'm not your professor. I'm a pastor. And so again, I want to lead you to what is the big picture? What is the big picture that Jesus is trying to alert us to? The big picture is that when you see these signs, the end is near. The end is near. Near like the end of this week? Near like a year from now? No. Maybe. But near like the next thing on God's agenda to do. Creation has taken place. The fall has taken place. Jesus' rescue has taken place. And what is next is the restoration of all things. And so on God's timeline, the God who doesn't measure time as we do because it says in 2 Peter that for God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. On his timeline, the next thing on his agenda is for Christ to return. And so the point of this discussion is not to get you all anxious and nervous and worked up about it. It's just to help you live wise and faithfully today is to help you prepare well today. Because look at where Jesus goes with this discussion. Look at how he ends it up in verses 34 and 36. These are like Jesus, you know, at the end of the day, what you really need to be concerned about is this. Verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. 
for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things and are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So after talking about all this global, universal, end-of-the-world type of stuff, Jesus gets personal, and he says, watch yourselves. He doesn't say, watch the news, read the paper, follow the tweets, and when you see China doing this, and you see Israel making this move, and America doing this, he doesn't say to watch those things. He says, watch yourselves, watch your life. Remember how this conversation got started? Those disciples walking around that temple saying, wow, would you look at that? Is that not impressive? Those stones, that building. And Jesus is like, guys, it's just a pile of rocks. Guys, it's all temporary. It's all coming down. So at the end of the conversation, he's reminding them, stay vigilant. Guard your hearts from being impressed by the things of this world. Because this world will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Don't get caught unprepared because you're busy chasing life's pleasures and the cares of this life, these things that will weigh you down and keep you focused here and not on the things of eternity. That phrase, lest your hearts be weighed down, that's a rich phrase. It's it's a poetic phrase here. Being weighed down, it's, it's a way to describe when you're really, really, really tired you know, and, and your eyelids just are so heavy and your head's bobbing. That's, that's miserable. Some of you are like that this morning. <laughs> right? That's miserable to be so sleepy. You're just fighting to stay awake and you can't quite do it. You're sluggish. You're heavy. There's no energy, no vitality. You're weighed down and dragging. We don't want our hearts to be like that, do we? We want our hearts to love. We want our hearts to be filled with passion and excitement. To be weighed down describes when you're falling asleep and and you're kind of awake, but you're kind of not. Someone could ask you a question and you might say yes or no, but a few hours later you have no memory of it. You were out of touch with reality. It was all just kind of foggy and fuzzy and dreamlike. And Jesus is saying that when you forget the bigger picture of God's plan when you forget about eternity and you get focused in on this life and the things of this life, you're actually losing touch with reality. You're like in that sleepy, heavy state where you're not alert and awake to what's really going on. And this is how unbelievers live. This is how people who do not recognize the kingship of Jesus Christ, it's it's how they approach life They don't appear to be drowsy and sluggish. They appear to be having a good time, at least some of the times. But they're not awake to true reality. 
They don't see the bigger picture. They don't live with eternity in mind. They, they place value on what is ultimately invaluable, not valuable. They place significance on what will one day be completely insignificant. They find their purpose in what is really of no purpose. They are impressed with what will one day just be a pile of rocks. And so when you see these signs of wars and famines and epic outbreaks and earthquakes and hurricanes and nations rising and falling, these are signs for you as a follower of Jesus to know that Jesus is coming again and he expects to find you alert to him. He expects to find you like a good steward who has been managing well what he has entrusted for you to do. He expects to find you living for his glory and awaiting his return. These signs remind us that there are two kingdoms at play here. There's an earthly kingdom and an eternal kingdom. So these signs are for the believer, not the unbeliever. Don't be persuaded. Don't be surprised when unbelievers are not persuaded by the signs that you see. Don't be surprised when when people see what we see as moral erosion and they claim that it is progress, that it is the way of the future. We want to shake them. We want to say, wake up to them. Don't you see that time is ticking? Don't you see the bigger picture of God's eternity at stake? We want them to get their priorities straight, starting with Jesus, number one. But they're probably just going to be like, why are you all so doom and gloom? Why are you so stuck in the past? So when you see that guy at the intersection wearing the sandwich board that says the end, of the, the end is near, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that sign's actually for you. It's a reminder to you that Christ is returning. And so you should focus your energy not on the things of this world, but the things that will last forever. We should read that sign, and it should remind us that we need to watch my life. Make sure I'm not becoming too comfortable and cozy in the here and now. That I need to approach life with this awareness this life is just temporary. The unbeliever who drives by that sign and, and he sees that guy wearing that sandwich board saying the end is near, he, he's probably going to go, that guy's a nut. <laughs> he's not going to get it because he lives with a one kingdom perspective, but we live with a two kingdom perspective. What Jesus is doing for us in Luke 21 is he's drawing big pictures And he's shouting loudly for dull people like you and me who tend to get so impressed by temporary things that are one day going to be a pile of rocks. He's drawing these big pictures and he's shouting loudly for us so that we will not waste our lives pursuing what will one day be of no importance. What Jesus wants is for us to be 
a people who put our hope in Him, not in the things of this life. Life is in Jesus, and the mark of His followers is a longing for His presence. And I'll leave you with this. 2 Timothy 4.8 says that Jesus has a crown of righteousness that He is going to award those who have loved His appearing on that day. Are you longing for His appearing? Let's pray. Father, Your Word is a gift to us because it awakens us to a perspective that we would otherwise be completely blind to. It tells us that there is more at stake in this life than what we assume. It tells us that You have created us immortal. Yes, we will die here or you will return, but we will all live for eternity and there are two destinations. So Father, I pray that in light of the future, we will live lives today that are pleasing unto you, that that strive to be holy and godly, that we would bring an awareness of the shortness of this life to both ourselves and to others, and that we would help to lead others to you, to Christ, in which true life can be found. Life both here and now, and life forevermore. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, now is our time of response, and as Bacter leads in place, I encourage you to stand and sing in response to this great God of ours who has revealed to us.